welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. People make places. That's what Pallavi Kehle mentioned a number of times in our conversation. She's a cross-cultural psychologist and a master guide for others in and through the landscape of people's differences and similarities. She advises that knowing just enough is what we need in our journey to explore cultural differences. And that's intriguing and somewhat counterintuitive advice for many. She has been focused on making expatriates successful in her native India, and now she's leveraging her own expat experience in Saudi Arabia to help organizations and individuals navigate this dynamic, fascinating, challenging, and fast-changing environment. Enjoy our conversation. So, Pallavi, I, I, in, in these podcasts, I, my first question is always, what do you do? <laughs> and particularly in your case, I think it's, it's really fascinating what you do. So I, I can't wait for your answer. Thank you, Jörg. It's always nice interacting with you. And I'm glad we're doing this podcast together. So I'm Pallavi. I am originally from India. That's where I grew up. And um, I have an academic background in psychology and cross-cultural psychology. Since almost more than 10 years, I've been working in the space of cultural intelligence. I currently facilitate cultural awareness sessions uh, for expats and families in global transition. So that's, that's what I've been doing. That's what I'm most passionate about. And I did that back in India. And uh, since the past four years, I've been living in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So I relocated here with my husband. So I relocated for love. And I said, you know what? I have this background. I have this zest to learn about world cultures. I myself am in a new culture outside my comfort zone. It's time I practice what I preach. And it would, uh, it's, it's just been incredible ever since then, just to learn, observe, see it from a, an inside-outside perspective. And that's what I bring in to my cultural training programs as well. So for those that are listening and that don't know what cross-cultural psychology is, I mean, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Just, just because psychology, I think many people understand, but, but cross-cultural psychology is a particular subdiscipline or, 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 or discipline of psychology. Right. So cross-cultural psychology, and I can tell you my journey as well, how I got into cross-cultural psychology. So um, it all started with uh, me going on an Indo-German cultural exchange program in my high school. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I took up German. And German also came to me because my dad worked in a German company for a couple of decades, and he always wanted to learn German. So he's like, you know what? I couldn't do it. Why don't you do it? I said, okay, I'm open to this. <laughs> I picked up German and that was one of my life-changing experience, I think, because I, because I started learning German and got onto this particular exchange program. And I went to Germany, stayed with the German host family for a month. That was my first trip outside of India. And that's when I realized, hey, there's a whole different world outside of India. I know India is diverse and we grew up in a very multicultural setting, but uh, it's a whole world outside of India as well. And there's so much to learn and so much to you know explore. And uh, when I did that, I realized that I need to do more of this uh, because I was swamped with cultural surprises, culture shocks, something as simple as, oh, you know, you can have 
bread and spread chocolate on it for breakfast, for instance, you know, that was introduced to Nutella the first time in Germany. Um, or it's okay for my boyfriend's girlfriend, uh, my, my, sorry, my host brother's girlfriend to come and stay with, with us in the house. And that was a culture shock for me coming from India. But it's okay for my host dad to cook half the meals and share that household work. That was a little new for me as well. So, um, okay, I, I said, you know, I love this experience. I want to do more of this. And so when I took up psychology later to do my graduation, um, and uh, I said, you know what, let me look up what kind of psychologies can I major in? Because everybody was going towards clinical psychology, organizational psychology. People were leaving the engineering degrees and doing MBA in, you know, your uh, organizational behavior, for instance. And I'm thinking, uh, no, I don't want to go that part. I want to explore more with something to do with language and culture. And I literally started off with a Google search. What types of psychology can you master it? And I came across cross-cultural psychology, which was offered by Brunel University in, in London. And I did not know the university at all then. I was like, what is this? You know, I've never heard of this. But that was the only university in the UK back then, more than 10 years ago, that offered this course. Yeah. And I said, uh, and it looked amazing. I reached out to an alumna. I spoke to her. She said, it's, it's a great opportunity. You should take it up. I got accepted over the weekend. So that was really smooth as well. It was meant to be, I thought. And speaking of cross-cultural psychology, I realized it was, it was a rather research-oriented uh, program, which spoke of how cultures are different and similar, and how can we sort of um, navigate to these cultural clusters by bridging these gaps and sort of enhancing the work culture across the world or just living anywhere across the world. So right. how can we just understand that world is different and similar at the same time? Would you describe it as almost the psychology of navigating cultural differences in a sense? Is that That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And we had a very multicultural classroom as well. So any topic that was taught, we had several perspectives coming in. And that's what made it really exciting. Sure. It's like, okay, for instance, you're looking at morality. How would you define morality across the world? What is moral? And I still remember this one, one example that the, the professor gave. She said, between slapping your father across his face, kicking a dog, stealing money, what is the most you know, non-moral thing that you could do? What is something that just doesn't go down well? And for me, of course, it was never. I would never have my dad, like ever. This is just, it, no. Yes. For a yes. lot of Americans in the class, it was like, I would never kick a dog. Yeah. And I, that was a bit of a, it was a bit of a culture surprise for me, but I'm, I'm opening my mind to it. Sure. Why would they think that way? Why? There's always a why behind we do things. Yes, of course. And that the, the same thing, the, the same thing that inhibits you to stop your father is actually that same energy that somebody experiences towards dogs, right? I mean, it's yeah. sometimes, I, I think that's the similarity and the difference altogether. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what got me curious about this field of work. I said, one thing can be perceived in so many different ways. And I'm curious. It built that curiosity yeah. to understand why would that be a certain way. So I try to observe things a certain way. I try to find why things work a certain way. And that's what also led me to travel because I absolutely love traveling. Yes, I can tell because on your LinkedIn, <laughs> your adventures. Every month, the fact that we live in the Middle East, and that's how my now husband sold it to me. We weren't married when he told me that I'm moving to Saudi Arabia. I said, what? I just told my parents about us. And you're telling me that you want to marry me and take me to Saudi Arabia. 
that nobody knew much about. It was a yeah. mystery country then, still is a mystery country now. It's it's opening up. And coming back to it, and I said, um, I would love to move there. And that was one of the things he's told me, we'll be able to travel a lot. We'll be in the Middle East. And it's the middle of East and the West. And, you know, it'll be amazing. He worked with an airline. And that's what I think one of the one of the other reasons that I chose to move to Saudi was that to be able to explore the new culture and cultures that surround this area. Yeah, it's exciting. Yes, of course. <laughs> Especially when you study um, cross-cultural psychology, right? I mean, that's you get to live it, you get to practice it. You're, you're your only laboratory, I guess. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love in your story, I absolutely love that Germany was your um, your starting point, right? Yeah. So you're, you yeah. know, and and what I'm learning from from your comment is also that you know we all grow up in a sense in relatively diverse environments, and I say relatively because some places are by far more diverse than others. Yes, I think of just about India or so. Yeah, but nevertheless. That's just the diversity that we are comfortable with, that we have a point of reference for, right? And then there is diversity that we absolutely have no points of reference for, right? And, I, yes. and, and I'm just curious, in, in terms of, of cross-cultural psychology or so, if, if that makes a difference, the, the diversity we know and the diversity? I think it does. I think it's sort of, um, you put on a certain, you always, no matter what you study, no, it's like doctors, you know, not all doctors can treat themselves. So no matter what you study, you, there's always something that you can learn. There's always something you learn either through positive experience or a challenge or a negative experience, right? Yes. And so answering your question, no matter how diverse a person surrounding that you grow up in, you would always have new things to learn when you move outside. So that diversity was my comfort diversity zone. Yes. So when I stepped out of that, then I realized, it, you know, the, the deeper you get into cultural studies, the wider it gets, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and, and that's the difference it makes uh, when you're, you're studying it, but you're also looking, you're still learning, but you're looking at things a little differently than what others would. For them, it would just be in passing. For you, you're observing different thinking. Why would this be? I need to dig a little deeper. Let me look at it. Let me ask somebody why this works right. a certain way. So I think that's helped. It's also part of the recipe. Right, to ask and to, to be curious, I mean, curious about just about anything that you experience, I think. Right, absolutely. I, I have, I don't know about your experience because I've, I've done a little bit of work in the area of, of cross cultural or intercultural, and you know, how, I mean, there is so much vocabulary floating around this, you know. What changes have you seen? Because one thing that I have certainly experienced myself, I mean, I, I, I grew up in the area, I, I moved out of Germany um, when we still had to place very expensive phone calls, right? So there was no um, kind of smartphone and WhatsApp. And, and, and certainly the level of interpersonal connectivity wasn't there, you know, and, and social media, obviously. And, and I think... To some level, I think that has profoundly changed also the nature of what we do, because very early on, I remember the, the art and science of intercultural or cross-cultural was all wrapped around this complicated notion of national culture. And I found that to be always a bit limiting, you know, because for me, cultural boundaries are not political boundaries and national boundaries are by nature political and cut through, you know, cultural 
configurations, if you will, oftentimes because country boundaries are colonial artifacts very often or so. So it's actually rather complicated to actually just look at culture versus nationality a little bit. And I and I, I think the social connectedness, social media, an environment where we even find our own tribes, if you will, on social media have complicated absolutely. this field to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Just going to take a moment here to address national culture versus culture as an individual. I think all of us belong to more than there's research that says all of us belong to more than 20 groups at a time. Yes. <laughs> and nationality is one, one of them. Yes. So uh, though it tends to dominate our personality and our identity, we do belong to a lot of other groups that define us. For instance, I am part of an expat group living in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Right. I'm an Indian in that expat group, but also we're looking at something called cognitive diversity, right? There's been also been research where you have a group of individuals who are all from a certain city in the United States. They all take a certain kind of assessment. And then they realize that, okay, they're more cognitively diverse than a group that has 20 different nationalities. Yes. So um, again, uh, that's a very interesting topic that I thought about cognitive diversity. And that needs to be explored some more because that goes way beyond your national diversity and your culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and another thing that I'd like to add here is because you, you also asked, how has the application of cross-cultural studies changed? And where all can you see it happening? Where all do you see this diversity? And I think two things have changed. Um, I wouldn't say the core of it, but the way you would apply cross-cultural studies is, one is globalization, of course. The world is getting smaller. Cultural lines are getting blurry. So for instance, if I, I, which I, is a personal example. I went to Japan. And I met a fellow interculturalist who was American, married to a Japanese. And she was very kind enough to give me a little tour of Tokyo and said, let me show you the Tokyo through an expat and a local's lens. And I said, I would love it. So she took me into her car. We drove around. Uh, her husband was Japanese. And I, I was starting to think, how do I behave differently with her and with him? Something as simple as greeting or how do you say goodbye? So after spending a good eight hours with them exploring Tokyo, I gave her a hug and I wasn't sure what to do with her husband. <laughs> so uh, definitely I wasn't going to bow. We had gone beyond that. So I, I you know, put my hand out for a handshake saying thank you. Uh, but he went in for a hug and I said, okay, I'll give a hug as well. Yes. So, you know, you expect to bow in front of a Japanese or it's because they look a certain way and you're sort of like conditioned to think as an inculturalist that. So sometimes knowing too much is not too good either. You have to go with the flow, I think. And that's why travel helps. Oh, yes. So you start to challenge your own notions that you've learned and you're, you're including in your training as well. But that helps you to tell people that, you know what, I'm giving you this knowledge. I'm equipping you with it. Right. But be mindful because these are some examples. Go with the flow. Use your cultural intelligence because that's not only knowledge. That's a lot of strategy and, and drive as well. And sometimes too much knowledge gets in the way, right? I mean, it makes Absolutely. people insecure, right? And then they stop and then they stop themselves from acting. And yeah. then they're not, you know, they, they, it's a complicated interaction between knowledge and, and doing and acting, right? Absolutely. So that's what I say, like, know just about enough so that you have the capacity and the wiggle room to unlearn when you need to. I think that's great. That's a great nugget of insight. Know just enough, right? Because I've met many people, expats included, that want to know it all, right? There is this this great uncertainty and the desire to know it all. And 
you know, this this just enough, but how do you know what's just enough? I think just enough would be to a point that you're not so opinionated about something that you can't accept somebody else's perspective or be open enough to someone else's perspective. Because sometimes you know so much of it and you're so determined that this is the only way that this could happen or this is the only theory for it, that you're not open enough. You don't have the vigor of the space to accept yeah. that there could be another way of looking at it. That was one. So that was your globalization, how the world is getting closer. The second one is digitalization. And as you pointed out, social media, influencer market, marketing in general across the world. That has changed a lot. And two classic examples for that. I just recorded my first podcast yesterday, which is about cross-cultural marketing because I did a workshop about it and, and somebody wanted me to record a podcast yes. about it. And what takes in Saudi Arabia, for instance? So this is a very interesting one. But something as simple as how do you use emoticons yeah. when you, or, or GIFs when you communicate? Some cultures are so big on it, there'll be special apps like, say, South Korea that have apps that only sell emoticons. So you buy these stickers and you right. communicate through that. Whereas cultures like the UK would barely use emoticons. It's more words, right? right. Right. So um, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, there are a lot of cultural differences to learn through that as well. The interpretation of an emoticon across the world can be very different as well. So when you're oh, working yeah. across boundaries, you're working across geographies, you want to be mindful. What an interpretation of a particular wink or the hug emoji. Is it even hug or is it just like, hey, how are you doing? We exactly. don't know. <laughs> right? it's, it's much more ambiguous, right? And if you, if you don't know, it can actually send exactly the opposite or sometimes the message you don't want to send, right? Exactly, exactly. So even this, the namaste, it looks namaste for me because I'm Indian, right? I'd be like, thank you. We use that a lot, but it could actually just be a high five. Right. <laughs> so when you're right. trying to say thank you, you're saying high five and that could come across too, come across as too casual. Yeah. So how do you interpret that? So this is a great example. And if you don't mind, I mean, I'm just curious. What do you tell people? I mean, it's one thing to use emoticons with people I know, right? Because even if I use it the wrong way, my daughter knows that, oh, this is just my father, you know, using, <laughs> you know, and she knows she, because there is a relationship around. Yeah, this context. Exactly. Now, what do you advise people in this age where we no longer know, and, and this is how I, and to me, globalization and digitalization almost are synonymous, right? Yeah. And, and to me, what that really means is that whatever we are, we are accustomed to, you know, in how we communicate or how we do things is at least unreliable, rendered by the diversity around us, right? And I'm just wondering, how do you, make it more reliable for people? What do you advise somebody to do when I'm unsure about my use of emoticons, for example? For instance, I would play it safe. Uh, when I'm interacting with somebody the first time, also depends, is it email or is it a text message? WhatsApp is not that common, although it's very common in Saudi Arabia. So the platform that you're communicating it also differs across cultures. What do people interact with on the most? Is it um, a virtual meeting? Uh, and it, it could be in the chat box that you're using GIFs or, or is it on an email or is it on a WhatsApp text, right? These three I could think of in the world because I right. use all three right. of them yes. being yeah. in this part of the world. Um, so it really depends what kind of sector you're in. I work with a startup in Saudi and we have a multicultural team who's spread across the globe. The chat box is lit. You know, anytime there's a meeting, anytime there's a workshop, you'll, you'll see them extremely informal, but at the same time, very... Um, engaging and attentive. And you also find a lot of insights coming out of that chat box. 
But it's okay the CEO for the CEO to send like one of the really funny emoticons or or gifs, and that's totally fine. But we also follow a very egalitarian sort of holocratic uh, culture yes. in that organization because this startup, even if it's based in Saudi and led by a Saudi national, um, if I had to chat with anybody um, who is uh, on an email, and I personally never initiate with a smiley or any sort of emoticons unless somebody else would do that first. Yes, and I think if there's a need, then I would just send a simple one. And I think just the smile is 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 the safe one there. A wink might be a bit much or a laughter smile. And a lot of times, if your system is not updated, it looks different to the other person. That's true. So you have to be very careful. You'd rather use a colon and the, the bracket, safe bet. That's not going yeah. to change. Yeah. So, yeah, that's email. And WhatsApp is a, a whole different story. Um, I've had such intriguing experience in this part of the world. They use a lot of roses to say thank you or uh, show appreciation to something or even say welcome they use the red rose huh. uh, irrespective of the gender yes so i've had a lot of red roses from saudi men on my chat but <laughs> these could be guides or people that i've worked with and I, I just know because i know and i wouldn't get offended with that saying that oh you know what i got sent a virtual red rose by saudi gentleman what does that mean it doesn't mean anything it just means gratitude or sort of make the chat pleasant i think just to add a pleasantry Right. And it's, this is a great example how easily different meanings can be transposed, right? And how we could potentially misinterpret this altogether and, and, and so forth. So I, I like your advice of playing it safe, safe. Yeah. watching the norms first a little bit, how to use it and maybe then ask about it, but then, then, you know, and then you can engage with it. Yeah. And not just emoticons, even exclamation marks. Or how you address somebody. Because I've seen a lot of Americans would just say, Pallavi, this is what we need to do. It comes from a very task-oriented culture. I get that. And that's the why behind it. But in India, it's so common to say, dear Pallavi. Right. And I'm like, oh, I like that better. But sometimes I'm, I'm just better with, I think, hi Pallavi or hello Pallavi. <laughs> but I think something has to be before Pallavi. Yes. Just saying Pallavi in India would be when someone is upset with me. Yes. They're like, Pallavi, I need you to get this done. And I'm like, okay, I need to get this done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's the interpretation as well. How, how are you starting your email? Yeah, and it all goes back to this over general caution we need to have as to not assuming that what works in my environment, what I'm used to, will also work in the next relationship, whether it's, you know, somebody in Saudi or whether it's somebody in, you know, in a company that I don't know that is just around the corner from me. Yeah. Because that person can also be Saudi, right? So we, we, you know, you mentioned something I'm curious about. Startup in Saudi, and you talked about it's a it's a more equality or egalitarian culture, even though it's in Saudi. That's I mean, that's what you said. And I was you're talking about the intersection of let's say an organizational culture with quote unquote national norms. And I'm just curious if you can talk yes. about it a little more. Yeah. And I'd like to reiterate and go back to when you asked me, how does it change, like knowing too much and then unlearning. So that took me. It it I, that's a perfect example for it because I came here learning about how Saudi is a very hierarchical culture compared to, again, it's relative, right? You're comparing it to, say, I don't know, American culture. But I had to, I know, when, I, when I learned about this gentleman who's leading the team, I had to understand, and so did the team that struggled to understand 
why is he being so chill? You know, that's not what I expect from a Saudi boss at all. But then you think about his background and he's well-traveled and he's worked in startups for a long time. He's worked with a lot of young people across the world. And I'm not saying he's not young. He must be probably in his mid-40s, early 40s. But but we have people in our in 20s in our group, yeah. uh, in our team across yeah. the world. And they're so smart and they really know they're, they're subject matter experts. So coming back to your question, um, it did take some level of unlearning to understand that not everybody, it's just sort of use all the debunking, right? There are always exceptions to every law, every observation, every stereotype, every rule. And that was it for me. That was it for me. Um, I realized that I need to unlearn the fact that see somebody, uh, observe them, work with them before you actually categorize them as Saudi, hierarchical Saudis or hierarchical Saudi boss. Right. right? I would expect that. Yeah. Um, having said that, the structure to the organization for convenience, we do have titles, we do have project leads and circle leads, but, um, and, and CFOs and CDOs, but, but uh, the communication you can observe, it's, it's very holographic, actually. Yeah. That's what, uh, holocracy, actually. That's what we're trying to follow in the organization, which was a new concept for me as well. Talking about, yes, exactly. Holocracy is a, gra- is a great, it's an interesting configuration and it's new, right? So you have a relatively innovative, you know, forward-looking social organization, a CEO who behaves counter to, let's say, what the stereotype or or assumption might be but it actually illustrates a couple of things too because when we step into an environment that is unknown to us we need a guide and you are that guide if i understood your you know what you said you know before but in the absence of a guide you know i mean we still need to make sense of some information you know and i like the principle you articulated around play it safe in the beginning because it may be safer for you to assume in the absence of anything else that you're stepping into a rather hierarchical environment, right? I mean, if you think about it, if, if you learn about Saudi and, and we've done some work together around Saudi and, you know, in Saudi generally, you tend you know, assume hierarchy, you know, that doesn't mean that everything you will encounter is hierarchical, but it, yeah. it almost is the safer assumption in the absence of knowing it's safer to assume hierarchy than it is equality because if you mistakenly assume equality and you make, I mean, some faux pas, some mistake, it's harder to recover. Right? Absolutely. So it's actually safer to assume hierarchy and then, but but be open and observant, and then when you yeah. feel no, it's not so hierarchical, then you can modify your approach. But it's safer, right, in a sense. Right. It is. It is. It's just like saying, know just enough. Know that, expect hierarchy, but that might not apply. To, while that might apply to the majority of the organizations, yeah, it might not apply to all of them. So now, of course, I need to ask you about those expats that you're helping, right? I mean, you've said you've done this in India and, and, and Saudi. You know, maybe we could, I mean, I don't know if you'd like to talk about India a little bit, but I'm, I'm just curious what are the biggest misconceptions non-Indians have of India? Oh, interesting. It's been a few years, I would say. But um, I think with India, it's about working with younger generations. Hmm. Um, the Gen Z, millennials and Gen Zs, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
people who just graduated. And you find that India is a very young country. And that I find that similarity with Saudi as well, the median age being about 27 to 29, yes, which is a very young country. It's certainly not Germany. <laughs> it's certainly not Germany or Japan. Yes. Um, so uh, being able to work in India, I think you can't just say working in India any part of the, uh, in India would be the same because in India as well, we have so much diversity and, and people come with a certain attitude from different parts of, of India as well. So if you have a team, you have people from different cities across India, the work cultures are, and the attitudes are very different. So you're, as a, as if you're coming on a managerial position, the way you manage an Indian team is going to be very different than you might manage, say, a Saudi team, right? Because with India, you have to be mindful of, the background they're coming from uh, because work cultures are very different in different parts of India. Yeah. I'm not saying that Saudi is not diverse. I mean, we still have 13 provinces and cities and I mean, Saudi dialect of Arabic changes across the country as well. Uh, But uh, that's something that I used to tell a lot of CXO level or VP level um, expats that he was coming. They used to come to India and manage a team of Indians. In Saudi, I think it's 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 more to do with it's interesting because I haven't personally trained somebody who is at a very high position because given Saudization, most companies would have Saudis leading larger teams, so they'll be up there. The positions are taken by Saudis. Now you need to explain Saudiization <laughs> for those that are. So Saudiization is is the Saudi government's attempt and and an aim at um, employing more Saudis, bringing more Saudis in the work workforce. Uh, building up their skill sets now that women are working as well. So so that's Saudization. And certain sectors have certain quotas where you only need to employ Saudis in certain positions. So so that's that's Saudization. Yeah. And it's part of the Vision 2030 initiative. So you might not always lead uh, a team of Saudis or you might not be at a very senior position. But I think when it comes to Saudi, it's about just understanding that Saudi has only just opened up to the world Right. And, and as expats, we might be a lot of us now, but we might not be here going forward because they wouldn't need us after a while. Right. Because they want to be more self-sustained. They want to learn the skills and they want to yes. build the country together. And I'm really grateful and honored to be able to contribute to the vision collectively as a non-Saudi. So the fact that the, the, the kingdom has just opened up uh, a few years ago, they're really hungry for knowledge. So the knowledge transfer is what they're looking at. They're looking at mentors. They're looking at learning uh, from the world outside. So uh, it's it's really important that as much as training that we give you as, as expats about Saudi's hierarchical, it's a group-oriented culture, relationship building is very critical, hospitality should be respected and appreciated, etc. It's also important that you bring in your culture because there's no nothing right or wrong. It's just what works best for the organization. So along with your skill set, bring your cultural values as well. So if you're thinking that, you know, I want to be flexible because I'm in Saudi, but I also value time and I want to bring that to my team, do it. It's okay. See how it works. Do it in a subtle way by having built enough relationship and being approachable enough for them to trust you. Yeah. But do bring in the value and see how it works for your team. It's interesting to me what you're bringing up in the case of India and in the case of Saudi are two examples of societies on, on, on a different time scale, but also having, you know, kind of opened up, right? I mean, the sense of opening up to a global 
environment, right? Is similar, but India just has done it, you know, a, a few a years earlier. <laughs> I do sense a lot of similarities, and I think that also helps me as a cross-cultural consultant, who's a woman, who is Indian, who has a background in psychology and cross-cultural psychology, and who has lived the past few years in Saudi to sort of draw parallels to the, my cultural background and see that I see this country going through a sort of similar phase: women entering the workplace. Um, nuclear families are um, given more importance now because we had a lot of joint families in India back in the years as well. Yeah. And and uh, it's just the dynamics, the social cultural dynamics changing. And I've seen that change growing up in India. And I see that here, although the pace is just next level phenomenal. Sure. Uh, yeah. So it's just like fast forwarded pace to it. It's incredible, right? I mean, this is, I, I think this about pace is, is also interesting. The pace of social and cultural change yeah. and evolution. We, we tend to, I think that's, that's an affliction in the West that we assume that things, culture, move and changes slowly but it doesn't actually actually right it can it can it can move very fast it can move very slow and it's usually based on the need for adaptation right and in the saudi case i think it's it's finding other sources than oil as a as a as an economic and social backbone and and for india it was was certainly also economic development to some it was i think yeah i think change happens eventually that's the the main yeah. Right. So, how, how, I mean, there's so many questions, but but you can you kind of led there, you know, your your background, you know, as a woman from India in Saudi, how how do you navigate yourself in in that context of of and changing, opening up economies, society? Well, yeah, what what's that personally like, and what do you need to be mindful of? Um, so I, I would say Saudi Arabia is like any other country when it comes to living here, because it's all about, I, I, I see this a lot, people make places. And, and if you find the right kind of people around you, people are warm, hospitable, it just eases your, um, you know, the, the process of integrating into a new environment, a new culture. And that's what happened to me in Saudi. And the fact that I could observe so many changes, literally every other week, groundbreaking changes that have been here for centuries, <laughs> suddenly changing um, and, and, and making it easier, making the quality of life better. Uh, for instance, just the dress code, I would say. You know, mm-hmm. when I, I remember when I first landed in, in, in Riyadh, I, I bought an, a black flowy garment called the albaya that you need to wear as an over, over layer. Um, I bought that in India and I, I had it in my handbag. As soon as I landed in Riyadh, touchdown. I nervously dug into my back, put that on, and treading my way around the immigration, wondering what to expect and didn't know what to expect, right? Even though my husband had lived here a few months, I was really nervous despite knowing so much about it. And I realized that now um, I can, depending which part, I mean, Riyadh is fairly open, but if I'm going to more uh, slightly, say, like Qasim, which is a slightly more conservative uh, part uh, compared to Riyadh, I would wear an abaya. But it doesn't have to be black. It doesn't have to be covered. Mm. It's simple, modest clothing that covers your arms and your legs. That's, that's, that's all they ask for. And, and it's a form of respect. Yeah. Respecting the local culture, the local norms, and being comfortable in your own skin. So I, I feel great here. And I, I, and I saw that change. And I'm thinking, hmm, it's, it's only getting easier. Right. It's getting easier. Yeah. I wouldn't say better because, I, I mean, it was not bad, bad as such. And I'm nobody to judge if it was bad or not. But sure. it's getting easier 
as an outsider do. And that's what I tell my expat participants as well. I said, what you see and what you expect, just there's no substitute to experience. You have to come and see it for yourself. That's right. Especially, I think, when there are places, and I mean, it's not a, not a secret. I mean, from any place in the world, we, we have perspectives, assumptions, stereotypes of other places, right? And, and they cloud our own judgment of a place, right? I mean, and, and, and I think that's where, that's why this work that you're doing is so valuable. And why it's so important, by the way, I just as a as a commentary, why why I, I just love having you part of our faculty at the Inclusive Leader. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Because our job is to debunk stereotypes to some degree. Not only, you know, it's not just about debunking stereotypes, but it's really important to investigate the biases that we carry, the assumptions that we are making, and staying open to learning and adapting, right? And changing changing our own perceptions oftentimes and, and going through that process. But we can do it if we don't have guides like yourselves that can help us navigate the nuances of even the nervousness that we have, you know, the insecurities that we carry, the questions we have and we're afraid to ask. And when it comes to cultural differences, I always find people have tons of questions that they are afraid to ask. And then it creates self-imposed insecurity, in a sense. True, absolutely. And that's what I love what I do. I love that when I facilitate a training program, especially the one-on-ones, they, they customize in the private program, uh, people really open up yeah. uh, about insecurities and challenges. And there's some things that they never had a chance to speak up about, even between the couple. So, because you're moving your marriage. You're not just moving your cottons in your house, right? You're moving your relationship. To a different country and the dynamics change a lot. So I've had expats break down in my workshops. I've had them really share. And, and the next day is always better if it's a two-day workshop because I've seen that they've had a chat and I'm glad I could facilitate that through cross-cultural training. Yes, yes. Uh, so so uh, that's what I love about it. It's just that you give them that aha moment. You know, they learn something. They're like, I did not think about this. And I've had like CXO level, VP level people have trained They've traveled the world. They probably double my age. But when, when I tell them, had you thought about this value that could play a role in this? They're like, never. I yeah. did never think about this. So uh, bringing that aha moment and, and learning through their experiences and, and co-learning through that, uh, every single workshop is a learning experience. And that's what I love what I do. Uh, and you need to be a little bit of a couples counselor, I guess, <laughs> I think so. That was my first workshop. That was my first workshop. I had to tell a little story. It was more than 10 years ago. I had um, an expat couple moving to to India in Pune. I remember she was Greek. He was Spanish. They both lived in the UK. They just had had a little baby and they were moving to India, right? They lived for 15 years in the UK. So I was thinking, and it's always about interculture. It's always a cross culture. You're not just focusing on the, the host country culture. You're also understanding where they're coming from. That's where travel exten- traveling extensively helps because you can connect with them and relate to where they're coming from. So I was like, okay, UK and India. Okay, I have that straight. Well, when I actually started doing the training, I realized that there, so much more Spanish and so much more Greek was coming out of it. And their personal, you know, uh, things that they haven't had a chance to chat about. Yeah. So from a five working day, the husband had moved to a six work, six days working. 
and, you know, just sharing the workload, the fact that she never left the house before, you know, um, ever since she moved to India, is always caring for the baby, figuring out. So that's one of the biggest challenges in India. It's about figuring out domestic health and how do you sort of navigate that? Because people are not used to having full-time helpers or drivers, or, you know. So, so how do you, do you get too friendly if you're coming from an egalitarian culture or do you maintain a distance? Do you, if you get too friendly, then you don't know how that would backfire. So I think there used to be a whole different like module on that domestic help and how to navigate your way around it. Sure. And the meaning of that, right? I mean, in, even across cultures, the meaning of that and, and the cultural confusion we can set up all around us. But I mean, I feel we have, we've taken a tour through so much territory. When you look back on your, how you grew up, do you think it was something in your upbringing that predestined you to do this work? Um, I love this question and thank you for asking. I have to give a little shout out to my parents and my family at, at this point because um, growing up with two daughters, our parents were always encouraging us for new experiences. And even my the first Indo-German cultural exchange program it was because of my father, because he said, if you ever get a chance to get out of the country, explore new cultures, just say yes. Just say yes and we'll figure everything out. Yes. So I think yes. that's stayed with me so when i was in that that classroom where the, the teacher was a teacher and we don't call the professors back and the teacher she was teaching german and she said there's an exchange program there's one seat left is anybody interested i said sign me up i'm gonna go home and talk to my dad but sign me up and and i think that changed my life that simple thing that my dad told me that be open to if you get a chance if he wouldn't have i wouldn't have signed up for it and i think my life would have been very different yeah, that's great. It's it's a beautiful story, right? It's also a reminder as parents the power we have, you know. And 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 I mean, on both sides, right? We we can also create exactly the opposite, right? Not stay close, don't venture out, you know. And and you know how important that family, actually, the family culture is. Yeah, it is, and it doesn't have to depend where you where you're living, because I've seen a lot of. Indians who live in other countries, who've settled there for many years, they might be more closed to, and they're not sure if they want to let their kids travel. Right. Or they have never eaten in a local restaurant, actually. Exactly. They cook Indian food from their place, you know, routinely, and, and, and they, they really are kind of insulated in an Indian culture wherever happens, wherever they happen. Exactly. I mean, it's good to stay connected with your roots, but you got to have wings as well to be able to solo travel of across the world if you want to yeah from all your learnings and from the advice you've given from all the, all the observations you've had from your own personal experience what are like one or two practical insights you know and i'm always asking this question because you know a lot of i mean as you know we invite a range of faculty in into the institute and and they cover all kinds of disciplines very interesting personal stories. That's why these podcasts to me are so important. But I always ask them, what from all this experience, what are some one or two really practical things that anybody who is listening could apply tomorrow or today? I would say two. The first one, uh, it's something that I've read somewhere. It's not my original, but I, I could really relate to it. It's, you know, the age old saying, treat everybody the way you want to be treated. It does make sense at some point, but a step forward, I would say treat everybody the way they would like to be treated, right? And that's almost like a bottom line of cross-cultural psychology because yeah. understand the other culture well enough. So that, because, for instance, respecting someone, respect might be different 
showing respect might be different in different words, almost contrary sometimes. So if, if you want to respect somebody in a certain culture, it's about um, addressing them a certain way or, or giving them a special seat uh, on the table. But in certain cultures, it's more about, hey, I'm going to deliver my work in time and that's how I'm respecting you and your time and your ex- experience, right? So uh, that's the thing. So, so treat, treat others the way they would like to be treated. And, and I think the second one might be, it, it's really simple. It's, it's the power of a smile. And I've learned a great deal from it. Just because a lot of times when we travel, when we have people, we always have people around us, don't we? But oftentimes we don't want to make eye contact or have that smile, just the pleasantry of a smile. And I have two classic examples for this, and, and they've been incredible experiences. One was when I was in, in, in Pune in India, I took a public transport and I literally count the number of times I've taken public transport in India, in Pune especially. <laughs> I, get onto, I get onto the bus and, and I'm sitting there and there's this lady that walks in with a gentleman. And I know they're not Indians and she looked Oriental. I could tell he looked European. They walked and, and I, I looked at her and I smiled and she smiled back and she sat right next to me, uh, the seat head. She was from Japan. She had moved to um, India for a month to study yoga. We got talking. She's like, I love your dressing style. Can you tell me places to shop in Pune? We started off two years. We were in touch. Every time she came, she came home. We cooked meals together. She invited me to host me in Tokyo for two weeks. And I went and experienced the Japanese culture while living with a host family. It was incredible. Yeah. So that's the power of a smile and the eye contact that you could have. And it's not that I wanted to go to Japan and I smile at her. No, it was just, you connect, but be open to it. Don't be afraid to. And, and thank you for, I mean, I, I want to thank you for these two really, really great actionable insights because I've always found an attentive glance and a smile is kind of like a, for somebody who is really, in, I mean, who doesn't know the environment or so, that's that's a straw to hold on to, right? That's an invitation. I'm seeing you, you know, you're opening yourself up for a connection. Doesn't mean you need one, but but you're at opening that up. It works in your own culture just as well. I found, you know, might carry a different meaning, but but it works in any situation, and we oftentimes don't use that, right? We we don't we don't send that deliberate message i I think i've also learned the the more the more i learn the more i think a small a smile and a glance at the right moment at the right time is the most powerful thing we have and 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 that's why i say it's the power of a smile you know because it is really powerful it's you don't realize how simple act of uh, just the eye contact and smile there was another one when i went for a handicrafts exhibition that was hosted by the Ministry of uh, Culture and the Heritage Commission in Saudi. And, and there were all these Saudi women and men who were selling their handmade, uh, you know, the bastel. They, they, they were selling everything that they made with their hands uh, in different, uh, they had different stores all together in one setting. And I was smiling at everyone looking because any language is always a barrier. So smiles helps with that as well. So it just sort of breaks that barrier instantly. And, and I like that Saudi women, even if they're covered, you can see their eyes. And just that smile and that sparkle in their eyes is an instant connection. And I've loved that. And I've loved that. And you don't even expect them, like you don't, you don't know if they're going to smile back, but just not being afraid or being offended if they don't, or you don't yeah. catch it, it's, it doesn't stop me. Yeah. Uh, but I would do that. And I learned this a really interesting story about a Saudi lady. She wasn't from Riyadh. She's from a different region of Saudi. She had a little kiosk of macrame 
you know, the hand, the, the white, yes. yeah, yeah, hangings and wall hangings. And she had done a fabulous job. I said, it's not a Saudi art. Where did you learn this skill from? She said, I lived in Canada for a while. And, and her English wasn't great. And she was, you know, she I'm not sure my English is not good. I said, don't worry, I understand you. And she said she uh, made friends with a Mexican family. And that's where she learned it. And then she started to think that this is not a Saudi thing, but it probably the hand weaving, the culture came from the Persia or, or South America originally. And that's about how we picked it. And she's like, I'm so happy. I think fondly back to my days in, in, in Canada and, and where I learned this. And now she, she empowers women who are, um, I wouldn't say uh, women of determination in, in, in Saudi Arabia. She teaches them the art of macrame. So, so I, I thought it was an incredible story. You don't get that often. It's also, it's, I have, again, I love this also. It's also a great story for how culture works and how practices, they, they drift, you know, they, they move from place to place. And, um, yeah. and it's not like, you know, macrame started somewhere, but it's all, it's all an amalgam and we all take. And, and continuing to do that is so important. It is, certainly. Thank you, Pallavi, for this conversation. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I, um, and I look forward to not just working with you, of course, but uh, many more adventures and exchanges like this. Thank you so much, York. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you.